How we doing? Good. It's good to, to be here to continue on this series. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I've really enjoyed this study that we've been in in the book of Colossians. It's been really uh, great to just dig deep and to just take our time and really open up these passages and, and see how clearly that they are still speaking to us 2,000 years later. Uh, so far, we've, been, we've gotten through two chapters, and in the first two chapters, Paul really has been hammering down this point that, that Jesus is above all and over all, and your story is written intimately into his story, that because of the work that Jesus has done, you have a new identity. You have a, a, a story that is connected with his story. And then in chapter 3, which we're, we're going to get out today, really starts to, to make this practical. It starts to answer the question, okay, if this is true, if God is who Scripture, who the Bible says God is, if you are who God says you are, then how is it that we are supposed to live? How will this affect our actions? Is this just something we know? Or is this something that, that we know and translates into how we live our life? And it gets to this question that I struggle with, and I'm sure most of you all struggle with. It's this question of, okay, Jesus died on the cross to free us from our sin, and yet we still struggle with sin, right? I I know some of us struggle more, some of us struggle less, but we all are engaged in this struggle, that we are free from sin, yet we continue to sin. It reminded me of um, my daughter, Isabel, my four-year-old. I remember uh, when we were about two years ago, she was two, and uh, we're leaving church one afternoon, and for whatever reason, I had my bike here, and it was just her and I, and so I I threw her over the top tube of my bike, and I was just kind of pushing the bike out across the parking lot, and we're kind of giggling as we go. She's giggling. I don't giggle, but... uh, We're going out across the parking lot, and we're having fun, and it's a good time, and all of a sudden, my bike just comes to a stop, and I hear that sound, you know, that you hear from your kids. There's there's different kinds of crying, right? There's the crying, like, I'm not happy, Dad, and there's the crying that I'm hurt, and it was that I'm hurt crying, and I looked down, and her foot got tangled up in my front wheel, and it pinned it in against the fork, and I got her foot loose, and I knew. I didn't even look at it. I didn't even take her shoes off or do anything. I just, I knew that we were going to the hospital. It just, I could tell. So we get in the car, we drive over to the hospital, and I take her in, and they take an x-ray, and sure enough, her leg is broken. My little two-year-old, who has been walking all of a year uh, is now going to get a cast. And since she's two, they want to be even more cruel. And so instead of just doing a small cast, they decide to cast her all the way up to her diaper. And uh, it was so sad to see this, this you know, little two-year-old, and she was so proud to be able to walk, and now she can't walk, and she's kind of crawling around. But she is a two-year-old that was full of energy. So 
You will see in this video that by the end of her four weeks she had the cast on, she figured it out pretty good. (laughs) Um, All of our couches and furniture have like scrapes up the side of it from her dragging her cast over stuff. Um, And it was amazing. In four weeks, she relearned how to walk. She learned a completely different way to walk, encumbered by that cast. Four weeks went by. I took her into the doctor to get the cast cut off. And they cut the cast off and did an x-ray and everything looked good. And the doctor said, okay, have her walk to me. And she didn't want to walk to him at first. And he held out a piece of candy or a toy or something. And, and she starts walking. And she was walking just with this, this terrible limp. And the doctor says, okay, everything looks great. Have a good day. I was like, no, this is not great. You were supposed to fix her. What happened? Like, fix her. He said, no, it's going to take a while. Could even take months because she has learned how to walk in that cast. Everything is fixed. Everything is good. But she has this habit now. And so you can see this video. This is after her cast got off. This is quite a while off. And look at how she's walking. For months, for longer than she had her cast on, she walked like that. And she had to relearn again how to walk. And I was thinking about that in relationship to this passage and to to the Christian walk that we're on. A lot of us in here have been Christians far longer than we haven't been Christians. And we have been free from the power of sin. Sin no longer has control in our life. And yet we still walk with the limp of sin. We still walk encumbered by the burden and the brokenness of our sin. And this passage that we're going to get at, I think, begins to unpack this for us. It begins to challenge us to say, you do not need to live and to walk bound up by sin. You have been freed for that. Therefore, put to death all these things that used to be a part of your life. Get rid of them. You don't need them anymore. So let's go ahead and, and read the passage together. This is found in Colossians 3. Um, we're going to start in verse uh, 1 and roll through to chapter 11. Give you a second to, to turn to it. All right. Starts then. It starts by saying, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on the things that are above, not the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden in Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with all of its practices and put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. 
Here, there is not Jew and Greek, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. It starts to get practical, doesn't it? I don't know about you, when I read these verses, I find them really inspiring, really encouraging, but also really convicting. It begins with the first four verses in this passage, just again, hammering home our identity. This is who you are. This is who God created you to be. This is your position with him in eternity. So if those things are true, Live and act the way that you were designed to be. So I want us to ask the question this morning is, how do we live unencumbered? Or how do we we live free from the shackles and the bondage of sin and, um, and these vices in our life? The first thing I see in this, this text is this call for us to look up. Twice it says, you know, first says, um, Uh, set your mind on things that are above. And then again, it says, looking to the things that are above. Twice in two verses, it's calling us, hey, look up. You are spending so much of our time. We look just right at what's right in front of us. We look at the circumstances. We look at the challenges. We look at the pain and the burden and what we have to do today and how mean our boss was to us and how our wife doesn't understand us. And what God is calling us to in this passage is, you're looking at the wrong thing. Focus upward. Look at, at what I am doing. Look to the things that are above, not to the stuff that's just right down at the ground level in front of you. Uh, my dad has a boat up in Oregon. He lives up in Oregon. He's got a boat up there. And so I try to go up and go fishing with him every year. And we go fishing out on the, the Columbia River. And at the mouth of the Columbia River, it's huge. It's like six miles wide or something like that. And we'll be out there fishing, and you feel like you're in the ocean. There's even whales that'll come in and kind of feed in the, in the river there. Um, but if you thought you could just get in your boat and zip across the river, you would be wrong. Because the way the currents work, it pushes these giant gravel bars, these sandbars out into the middle of the river. So you could be, you could be a mile off of the, the shore and hop out of your boat and be in two feet of water or be in no water at all. And so when we're going out across to wherever we're going to go fishing, we have one eye kind of looking at the water, but there's not a whole lot to see on the water. It's just water. Where our focus really has to be is on our GPS charts, our our depth charts that are showing what looks like underneath the water. And if we take our eyes off of those things, we're going to run aground. And it's making the same point in here, obviously the opposite. Instead of looking down, it's, it's looking up. But it's saying, set your mind on the true reality that we exist within. This eternal plan that God has in our life is a plan that is far greater than just what you can see with your eyes. If all that there is to life is what we can see with our eyes, then I think probably the best thing for any of us to do would just be to get the most out of life. You know, suck the life out of it and live your life however you can. If, if all there is to life is the 75 or 100 or 120 years or however you plan to live, if all there is to life is what you can see, then, then live it to the fullest. But if what the Bible says is true, if you have been 
you have died with Christ, you've been raised with him, that there is a promise that when Christ comes back, we will be united with him to spend eternity with him in heaven, then it's critical that we start focusing on that. And that gives shape, that gives purpose to our life. It's not that somehow we ascent above the muck and mire of our world, because we don't. We still live in, we still walk in it, but it gives context, it gives purpose, it gives meaning to why we live our life, to why we care for people even when they hurt us, why we choose to be faithful even when it's hard, why we choose to suffer, why we choose to walk through difficult things. It's because our focus isn't what's right in front of us. Our focus is on the things that are above. But there's another challenge, I think, in this text to to focusing on the things that are above, and that's found in verse 6. After it lists the first list of sins... It says, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't love thinking and talking about the wrath of God. That's not something that gets me excited. I didn't go into becoming a pastor so I could stand up here and go, the wrath of God is coming. It's not not fun to talk about. In fact, if we were to put a sign out on Driscoll out there that says, hey, next Sunday, we're talking about the wrath of God I don't think anybody would just drive in off the street going, oh, that's interesting. I've always wondered about God's wrath. But yet it's something we see throughout Scripture. The Bible is clear that that because of the sin, because the brokenness, and because God is perfect and pure and right, that he can react no other way than to look at the sin and brokenness of our world, but with wrath. And sometimes I think we do a couple of things with God's wrath. One is we can just minimize it. We can just focus on his love and forgiveness and mercy, so much so that when we actually say the wrath of God, what we really mean is like a nice hug from your grandma. It doesn't really feel much like wrath at all. It just feels, you know, like something else. Or the other extreme is we can view God kind of like a a Roman, you know, or a Greek God, like Zeus up on some throne room in heaven, and he's like looking for our sins, and if he sees us do something wrong, then boom, he throws that lightning bolt down. And that seems pretty incomplete too, doesn't it? It seems a little bit shallow and superficial. But I think the best way to view the wrath of God is is what I think Scripture teaches us, that the wrath of God stands out against sin, and, and the most extreme expression of God's wrath is to turn us over to our own sin, to let us experience the full brokenness and ugliness of our sin. And that is what we are deserving of. And yet, in his love, in his forgiveness, in his grace, he turned that wrath on his own son on the cross so that Jesus would take on the punishment that we could be in relationship with him. And if we are focusing on that, if our mind is set on that, it gives context to our life. Why do we keep sinning? Why do we keep engaging in the very things that we have been freed from? There's one other thing here I just want to bring up is the living unencumbered, I think, is really wrestling with our identity, our place in Jesus. Let me just read through some of the the, the things that it says here in the passage, and just let these kind of wash over you for a minute. It says this, that you have been raised with Christ. 
meaning that you are no longer dead to your sin, to your brokenness. You are not stuck in some tomb of your own making, that because of his forgiveness, that you have been raised with him. And not only that, that that he is now seated at the right hand of the throne. So the Jesus we worship was not just a historical figure that had some good teachings. This is God himself. So part of us having our, our relationship with him is the power of knowing that he is God. It says that in the same way that he died, we died with him. The punishment for our sin has been paid. And now our lives are hidden in him. It makes me think of a child who hides behind the leg of their mother, right, when they get scared. And they hide behind their mother's leg because they trust that their mother can care for them, can protect them, can advocate for them. And our lives are hidden, not in our parents' lives, but in God, the creator of the universe, who is seated in heaven. That's our identity. And so before we, we turn to really looking at these sins that, that we're called to kill, to get rid of in our life, it's important that we, we let the truth of who we are wash over us a bit. Otherwise, it just becomes a list of things that we need to do. Instead of what I think it was intended to be was to show our true identity and to see these sins as contrasting to who we are and the work that God has done for us. But it doesn't just stay there. It also moves forward and says, okay, if all these things are true, then there's some action to take. Look at what it says in verse five. It says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. The point on your notes here is smash your cast. Okay, that's kind of the idea of, there there becomes a point where you got to get that cast off you. The cast restricted your movement for a bit of time, but if you keep walking around with that cast, it's going to cause a whole lot more damage than it ever helped. And it's time to remove it. And this passage, in actually much more extreme terms, tells us, it says, put to death those things that were earthly in you. I wanted to, to make this point like kill your old self, uh, but the, the people who are more thoughtful than I am, said, that sounds awful. You can't (laughs) say that. But that's actually what it's saying here. It's not saying, hey, these old selfish evil things that you used to do, just try to do a little bit less of them. It's not saying, hey, why don't you try to manage your sin a little bit better? Because it, it seems a little bit out of control. So maybe you could get your sin kind of in control. You need to dominate your sin so it doesn't dominate you. So just kind of be in control of of you. It's not what it says. Paul says, put to death, therefore, those things that are of your old nature. If I was to go home and um, put my daughters down for, for bed, and one of them was to come into my room and say, Dad, Dad, there's a black widow in my pillowcase. I wouldn't say, oh, just flip your pillow over. Use the other side of the pillow. It'll be okay. Or maybe, you know what, maybe that's not safe. Why don't you just put your pillow on the floor? Don't worry about it. Just, just try to stay away from your pillow as much as you can. Or even to say, okay, why don't you take that little black widow and let's just put it in a little jar and you can put it on your shelf. Uh-uh. In my house, there is no room for me and a black widow. We cannot cohabitate, right? There, I would walk into that room and I would smash the spider 
And then I would take that spider and I would flush it down the toilet because I wouldn't want like the little fangs to somehow poke us post-mortem. You know, I don't know how that works exactly. But I'm going to get rid of that. I think I'm going to push it completely out of my life. And there are sins in my life. I think the, the point here is all sin in my life needs to be pushed completely out of my life. So he goes through and he lists some lists of sins. The first list here is these sins that are um, kind of when our selfishness, our, our own desires get left unchecked. Kind of a, a list, sometimes they're called the sexual sins or, or just these lists of when I'm just, my selfishness takes over. So listen to them. Uh, it says sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. It says these sins are, are bringing about the wrath of God. Why would you engage in these things? And I think all of these things at some point or another are when we become so selfish that, that we will manipulate the reality for our own benefit. Look at even the first sin that it lists here, sexual immorality. Clearly, sex was something that God created. He created it, and it was good and perfect. And yet, in our sin, we can take that thing that is so beautiful, and we can manipulate it, and we can use it as a weapon to hurt and to injure each other, to cause ugly damage. The last couple of years with the the Me Too movement, it's come to the forefront. We're starting to hear more and more stories of how many people have been affected by sexual immorality left unchecked. And this isn't a new phenomenon. It wasn't like two years ago, like all the perverted old men of the world decided to get together and do jacked up stuff. This is human reality that we use these things to hurt and to destroy and break down each other. It goes through a list of things here. It says, you know, our impurities, our passions, our evil desires. It's those things that we long for, that we want, that, that we focus on, that fester within us. Last point here is covetousness. Okay, we live in the Bay Area. There is tons of stuff to covet all around us. There is way more stuff for us to want than there is for us to, to be able to purchase or to have. And so we covet, we long for these things. And it says, so you know that these things are idolatry. And I was kind of wrestling with that. I was like, oh, how is it like idolatry? How are they the same? They seem a little bit different to me. And then I started thinking about, well, what is an idol? An idol is something that we create. And you put it on your shelf and, and you somehow give offering to it. You try to do something. And the hope is that, that by manipulating that offering or that, that idol, you can somehow twist the cosmos to bring you benefit, to satisfy your own desires. And at the core of what that is, is the very depth of our human sin that we want to manipulate stuff for our own desires to benefit ourselves, even if it means tearing other people down. And Paul's saying, you got to put those things to death. There's no place for that in the Christian life. He says, this is the wrath of God coming, and you once used to walk in these things, but now no more. Then he lists off this other list of, of vices or sins. And I think these can be categorized more of like when our anger, our emotions kind of gets unchecked, when we, we don't rein it in, when it, it runs out of control. Anger, rage, malice, 
slander, obscene talk that comes from your mouth, lying. These you can, we've all experienced this. Our emotions go unchecked and we, we, we just lash out in anger and rage. And we don't even feel bad about it. We feel justified that there was some sort of circumstance that required us to, to respond in the way that we responded. And again, I think the point of this passage is, no, you didn't have to do that. You've been freed from that. But then there's malice and slander. Those are those, those things that come out of our mouth because we're just so frustrated at that person that, that we're not slandering that person. They deserve to be talked about that way. I'm just speaking the truth. It's ugly and it tears each other down. It goes on to talk about obscene talk that comes from your mouth. What a graphic description that is, right? It's not just that you said some bad words. It's that there was this obscene talk that came pouring out of your mouth. This, these words, this, this conversation that was so crude and so ugly and so painful. And I think so often we think of obscene talk just as a couple of four-letter words. And if we can avoid those four-letter words, then we are fine. It's so much beyond that, isn't it? And the last thing is lying. Again, what, how much more manipulative can we get than lying to each other? just for our own benefit, whatever that might be. Last night, um, well, yesterday, I, uh, I felt the, the burden of this passage. I was doing some, some plumbing stuff, um, and it, it wasn't going the way I thought it should have gone. In fact, it was not going at all the way I thought it should go. And I was angry, and I was in pain, and I was frustrated, and I was up, and I was... Uh, taking a break, and I was making some food for the girls, and I plugged something into the, the electrical plug in the kitchen, and it shorted out and blew the breaker, and I lost it. I, it wasn't funny. It wasn't, it was ugly. I went into a fit of rage. I was angry, and I was mad. I think pretty much all the, the list here, I think I could have checked all those boxes, except for maybe lying. I don't think I lied, but everything else I think I I qualified for. <laughs> and last night, I was laying in bed knowing that I had to come and preach this message today. And it was convicting. Going, what am I doing? I don't need those things in my life. There's no justification for it. I'm not trapped by those. I don't need those. I am saved by the work of Jesus. I have been crucified with him. I have been raised from the dead. My sin has been removed from me. I am hidden in Christ. Why do I keep engaging in those things? They're things that need to get put to death. Not minimized, not pushed out of the way, not done less of, but to do away with them. I love that there's some challenge here, isn't it? Now, I think it's also helpful to, to realize that this list here is not some sort of Ten Commandments 2.0. I, I think it would be wrong for us to take a look at this list and go, okay, I got to check these boxes. I can't do this, 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 and this. And if I can't do those, if I don't do those things, I'm good. No. In chapter two, Paul wrote, he said, hey, don't let anybody tell you that, you know, don't touch this, don't look at that, don't do this. That's not what righteousness is made out of. 
In fact, righteousness is finding your identity in Jesus. And so the same thing can be said about this. Don't just look at these things as a list of to-dos. These are a list of characteristics that don't have place, that don't belong in your new life. You don't need them anymore, so cut them out, kill them, get rid of them. But it comes from our identity of knowing who we are and seeking and pursuing Jesus. Another thing about this list is there, there's an argument to be made that this wasn't even a unique list. These were lists that were found in other writings throughout the Greco-Roman world, that these were probably commonly viewed lists of vices within society. So what Paul is saying here is all of these vices, all of these sins that we agree to, you don't need them anymore. So if you're looking at this list and you're like, sweet, my sin is not on that list. I must be good. That's not the point, obviously. The point is these things of this character, of this kind, need to get cut out of your life. And then there's hope. In verse 10, it turns around and it says, okay, so doing this, grab a hold of the new life. So there's encouragement that Paul is saying. He's, there's some assumption that, that this is happening in our life, that this will happen in our life. And he says, you need to grab on to the new life, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of our creator. One of those really simple sentences in the Bible, right? You guys hear that? You all know exactly what that means? Oh, cool. Okay, I could do that this week. No, that's complex. But I think what what he's getting at here is that this new life is a life marked by being uh, transformed, being made new as we deepen our understanding of who God is and what he's created us for. And in your notes, I put that we've got to learn to live in the heavenly economy. Here on earth, everything I can think of is kind of based, our economy, our way of life, even just nature itself is based on this sense of limited resources, okay? There's only a certain amount of resources in the world, and we're all kind of striving and fighting for those resources. Even think about like out in the woods, uh, there's a giant tree that's up. And it's shading out so that it's limiting the amount of resources of sunlight that can get down to the forest floor. Well, that tree falls over. And what happens? All the smaller trees fight to try to take that place and to try to to grab as much of that sun before it, it gets to the others. The same thing happens in businesses and trying to get the most market share or in your life to grab the most resources from your company, whatever it might be. But again, that's looking down. We're called to set our our mind on the things that are above. And in the things that are above, the economy of God is economy based on love. It's based on this unlimited resource of his relationship with us. It's a resource that we can take in as much as we want and we can give out as much as we can. And it will not diminish that resource. So being renewed in the knowledge and the image of our creator is tapping deep into that. Recognizing that, wrestling with that. And then in 11, it's pretty interesting to me. Uh, there's this verse. And I think if you were to, to take chapter, verses 1 through 11, and I was just to say, okay, circle the verse that doesn't quite seem to fit. You'd probably circle verse 11. Because all the, up to that, it's talking about, okay, be renewed in your mind, set your mind on things that are above, get rid of all these things. And then, by the way, in him, there's no Jew nor Greek, circumcised, uncircumcised, Barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, because Christ is all and in all. And, and I was kind of wrestling with that. I found that really interesting that the contrast to all these sins in our life 
is this picture of unity, of us together under Jesus. And what a beautiful picture that is. He goes through, he says the first kind of category is Jew or Greek, um, circumcised or uncircumcised. I, I think in our context, it could be regardless of the culture or religious background that you come from, we can come together under Jesus, that there is a place for us here. And he goes and says barbarian or Scythian. And from my understanding, barbarian, it's has a bit of a different connotation in our vocabulary, but then it just meant anybody who didn't speak Greek or understand Greek. So kind of the people on the edges of the Roman empire saying those people are part of the body of Christ as well. It goes on even further. The Scythians, which were kind of a nomadic tribes people from like kind of Northern Turkey, kind of Southern China area there. My geography might be a little bit off, but, uh, kind of Western Asian folks that that would come down to graze their livestock in the fields and would sometimes interact just from time to time with the Roman Empire. He's saying there's a place for them here too. Whether you're slave, free, regardless of your socioeconomic standard, because we come together under the body of Christ. And then it's really cool because at the end of the book of Colossians, Paul is kind of giving shout outs to all the people that he's done ministry with, all the people that he appreciates and he loves serving with that are key leaders and servants in the church. And what do you see? You see a list of people who are Jew and Greek, probably circumcised and uncircumcised, people who were were slaves or former slaves or were free men and women And in this beautiful picture, we get to see an image of what God is doing in this mosaic culture that we are part of, that we come together from all these different backgrounds. And this is a place that we are learning to get rid of our selfishness, to put that away and to embrace a lifestyle of selflessness, a lifestyle that emanates from the very image of who God is. And we get to be renewed by that image as we interact and love and to serve each other. Next week, we're going to continue on in this chapter, and Paul gets really specific with some of these virtues, these different things that we should put on now that we've taken off these sins from our life. But before we jump into that next week, I want us to to just focus a little bit here. What can we do this week to practically, to tangibly set our minds on things that are above I think there's a discipline here. This is something that we can, we can engage in, that we can learn to do, that we can grow in. What, what are some things you can do? Maybe it's a, a time that you carve out as part of just your daily devotions. Maybe it's starting a daily devotions. Maybe it's um, a conversation that you have with your uh, a friend or a spouse or somebody that you care about. Maybe it's some trigger that you can think of, okay, when I start feeling this way, I'm going to focus on who Jesus is. I don't know what it, it would be for you, but I think that's where we start. If we just jump right down to the list of sins that we need to cut out of our lives, I think that can just become another form of legalism. Let's start with that. Let's start on focusing on who God is and what he's called us to. And then once we've done that, let's ask the question, okay, what? What's that part of my life, that part of that old self that I need to put to death, that I need to kill, that I I need to smash, I need to remove from my life because it's no longer helpful. I've been healed. 
So let me close us in prayer, and um, we've got a, a couple of worship songs that can be a bit more contemplative, maybe a place for you to kind of wrestle and to think and to process these, even as we continue the worship service. Let me pray for us. God, we, um, we, we need you. We look at these things, and they seem overwhelming, and they seem impossible, and they are, because we, we cannot do them, but you have done them for us. So teach us to, to walk in the way you've designed us to be. Teach us to be obedient to you. Teach us to, to even see the pieces of our lives that are broken and are not needed anymore. Teach us to walk in a way that brings you glory and honor. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Bridges Community Church Sermon Podcast. Bridges Community Church is located in the San Francisco Bay Area in Fremont, California. To know more about Bridges Community Church, please go to our website at bridgescc.org.